Hello again and welcome to another edition of Club 46 driven by Bridgestone. I'm Jay Crawford joined again for part two unprecedented Joe. We've never done this before. Joe Thomas sitting down with us for part two of his interview. Thanks for having me. When I heard um, in 07 before the draft, mm-hmm. knowing that the Browns had a, an early pick, yeah. <clears throat> I heard a pre-draft story about you. I was at ESPN at the time and the, the big buzz was Joe's not going to the draft. Mm-hmm. Everybody goes to the draft. Yeah. Every kid dreams about what suit they're going to wear mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and what they're going to say. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of our NFL guys said, this Thomas kid is, uh, is a little different. He, <laughs> he's going fishing yeah. on the day of the draft. And it was at that point where I first said, oh, wow, the this is, I mean, if, if Joe and Wisconsin are a match made in heaven, <laughs> the Browns and yeah. Joe Thomas are yeah, a match yeah. made in heaven. Yeah. And when they called your name, I think all of Cleveland was thrilled because even though you're not a Buckeye, you get it, yeah. a Midwest cousin. Yeah. Um, what was that decision like for you? And what kind of pushback did you get from people when you said, not going? I got a lot of pushback. Uh, from the NFL, from a lot of people, from the different teams, because that was the same perspective that you just laid out there that they had. It was, well, everybody comes to the draft. Like, everybody dreams of this moment. Like, what's wrong with you? Like, why are you so different? And in my head, first of all, I didn't ever really watch the draft up until that moment. So I didn't really understand a lot about it, except I, I knew I didn't have a suit. And I didn't want to buy a suit because I wasn't going to need it because I wasn't going into the business world. I was going to be a football player. And last time I checked, we didn't need suits to go do our jobs. So I didn't want to, first of all, I was not comfortable wearing a suit. I was not a big fan of the big city. So at, the, at that point, like going to New York was a little overwhelming for me. Sure. Um, and it just seemed like draft day should be where you should spend it with the people that were part of the process, getting to that moment, like your family, your friends. Like, you should enjoy the people that were a part of your life leading up to that big moment, like getting into the NFL. And I didn't want to spend it with a bunch of people in suits that I didn't know. And it just wasn't interesting to me to be in the spotlight like that. Um, you know, we talked early about offensive linemen's mentality where they don't like the spotlight. That was especially true coming out of Wisconsin because we didn't have to do media every day when you're in college. You're not obligated to go talk with the media. And so, I talked as little as possible. I didn't want to think about that stuff. I just wanted to focus on being a kid, being a college kid, yeah. being a football player, like my buddies, the team. Like, uh, and so the idea of going to New York was not appealing to me. And I asked my agent, I said, Peter, uh, do I have to go? And he's like, no, you don't have to go. He's like, a lot of people like to because they dream of that moment and they think about wearing that suit, you know, that fancy suit and holding up the jersey. And I'm like, that doesn't sound fun to me. Like, wow. is it okay if I don't go? Can I go somewhere else? I, I thought of the NFL draft kind of like when you take a final exam and then you come to class maybe a week later and you find out the, how you did. Like, yeah. I already took the test, so it doesn't really matter if I'll I'm there. I'll get my grade one way. I'm going to get my grade whether I see it online yeah. or I show up and I pick it up from the professor a yeah. week later. And did he want you to go? Peter was like, well, he tried to lay it out. You know, he was trying to be balanced. He said. You know, if you go, it could potentially be good from a marketing endorsement standpoint because everybody's going to finally see your face. And in football, you're always wearing a helmet so nobody sees your face. This is an opportunity for the fans, whoever, what team drafts you, to see your face, 
to maybe you know get some marketing endorsements and I'm like Peter I don't care about that stuff <laughs> that doesn't mean anything this is to before me before you knew curtains were a thousand yeah right before <laughs> I knew how expensive buying a house was um, but and I said I, I actually don't even want to be like at a party like that sounds stressful to me I'd seen uh, actually I, I did see the draft a couple years before where Aaron Rodgers had oh. fallen and he was there sweating it out and I'm like that doesn't look fun at all. And it, torture. it looks torturous. Even if I'm sitting in a room and all my family and friends are sitting there on pins and needles and I don't get drafted that day yeah. and they got to come back the next day or, you know, you sit there for three, four hours and then you're disappointed and you're supposed to have this party where you're happy, but you're disappointed really. Like none of that sounds fun to me. Like, so was it, I just want to go and be by myself or go fishing or whatever. Was that self-doubt creeping in again? It maybe? was a little bit. You know, I think it was trying to protect my own fragile emotions at that point like if something bad happens i don't want to have to share that sorrow with all my friends and family or with a bunch of people i don't know in a place that i'm not comfortable being so what was that what was that fishing trip like what how did it so so my agent said all right you don't have to go to new york i'm cool with that you don't have to have a draft party no problem but he's like but you have to be somewhere where i can get a hold of you because the team needs to call you Uh, apparently there had been some players in the past that got drafted that had been arrested recently, or I think even one player had passed away. But this was kind of before cell phones, and this was before teams really like thought about, hey, maybe we should contact the player right before we draft him to make sure nothing has changed. Like you didn't break your leg last night at, at a bar, you didn't like you know uh, get arrested last night, and we're drafting a guy that's you know potentially did something really bad that's going to affect his draft status. So he's like, we need to be able to call you. Uh, because my original thought was, well, Peter, maybe I can go turkey hunting. He's like, no, no, yeah. you can't be in the woods turkey hunting. So I was like, all right, well, maybe can I go fishing? Like, that was the tradition with me and my dad growing up. Yeah. We went fishing almost every Saturday morning on Lake Michigan and Milwaukee. Um, maybe we can go fishing. And he's like, as long as you're in cell phone range, you right. can go fishing. So I'm like, perfect. So I set up a fishing trip with me and my dad, my father-in-law, and then... Um, uh, a guy, Joe Panos, he played in the NFL like seven or eight years, who's from Wisconsin, who's from my hometown, who coached me in high school, who was a big mentor to me up until that point. So we went fishing, and then NFL Network actually asked to have a camera on the boat, and I said, the one caveat is you can have the camera, but I don't want it to be live. You can capture the day, yeah. and then you can cut it up for a draft special later on, but I don't want the live reaction shot. That's not me. Right. Interesting. So when you knew, obviously, what time the draft started, was there a period where you started thinking, hey, uh, I, should be, I should be getting a call anytime? How <laughs> yeah. did that go? So the, the two things we wanted to make sure is, one, I was in cell phone range when I was on the boat, and then the other one was we needed to get within radio range so we could hear the draft, so we could at least hear how it's going, right? Because I was interested. Like, yeah. Obviously, sure. I want to know who went first because – at that time, the potential first picks in the draft were Jamarcus Russell, mm-hmm. Brady Quinn, or Calvin Johnson. The Oakland Raiders had the first pick. We knew I wasn't going to go one, but we thought, depending on who went one, I might go two or three. Right. So we wanted to hear it on the radio. So we, we made sure when we were out there on the lake, we got to a spot where we could hear the radio so we could get the draft, and we also had cell phone range. And so when we heard Oakland drafted Jamarcus, then I kind of knew that I was going to go to Cleveland because we had a pretty good idea Detroit was going to draft Calvin Johnson, right. and then Cleveland was either going to take me or Brady Quinn. But we were pretty sure they were going to take me. So, yeah. Fans arrived at the stadium on draft day full of hope and anxiety. 
Offensive tackle Joe Thomas spent the day worry-free, going fishing while he waited to be picked. Back to the 2007 NFL Draft presented by Sprint. That is the Cleveland Browns on the clock right now. <laughs> My agent says I'm not the only one fishing today. It sounds like the other teams are. <laughs> As Thomas caught another one, the Browns still had their line in the water. Six and change for the Browns on the clock right now. And uh, I always thought when this draft was going to come about, this is the pick of intrigue because the, this changes the face of the Browns franchise. Finally, the pick was handed in. Did you get a call to inform you, or did you hear I it did. on the radio? No, I, I got a call. So right after Detroit drafted Calvin Johnson, I got a call from, uh, I think it was, uh, I think it was Phil Savage called me. Yeah. And I picked up, hey, this is Phil Savage from the Cleveland Browns. Just wanted to let you know that you're going to be a Cleveland Brown, you know. And then so on the boat, woo, hooting and hollering, <laughs> everyone's getting excited. Then they put Romeo Cornell on, who was uh, the head coach at the time. And then they passed me off to one of the directors of scouting. I can't remember who it was at the, at the time. but um, And they just kept me on the line until the card actually got put in right. and got announced. Official. Official. Yeah. Just to make sure in case at the last minute, you never know. Some the owner trade, might swoop yeah. in or sure. another team might say, hey, we'll trade you two first-round picks, whatever right. happens. But yeah. they wanted to make sure I was on the phone. Um, and so it was, it, was, it was good. And my agent, the reason he knew that Cleveland was going to pick me, this is what he told me. I don't know if this is just agent speak, but he's like, I, I knew Cleveland was going to pick you because the night before I was on the phone with their head of their draft, like the whole night. And I knew if he was on the phone with me, he wasn't talking with Brady Quinn's agent. Sure. So we were pretty sure that once Cleveland got there, that I was going to be their, their first pick. Um, so it was interesting how it all kind of played out the way we had expected. Here's the commissioner. Okay, with the third pick in the 2007 NFL Draft, the Cleveland Browns select left tackle Joe Thomas, Wisconsin. Browns fans weren't the only ones happy with the pick. I'm thrilled, Coach. I'm uh, really excited. I think I'm going to fit in great with the Cleveland Browns. What was your reaction when you, when I was you knew pumped. was Cleveland? Yeah, so um, Tark Sala, he's a Cleveland mm -hmm. Brown from the 2000s, former Wisconsin Badger. Yep. Him and I were buddies, and so as soon as uh, Cleveland drafted me, he called me. He's like, oh, man, you're going to love Cleveland. He's like, it's your, it's your place. It's your type of people. I grew up in Milwaukee. He's like, Cleveland's a lot like Milwaukee. He's like, the hunting, the fishing's awesome. You're going to love that. But he's like, the people are just so passionate about their football team. They love the Browns. It's a blue-collar town. They'll appreciate offensive line play. He's like, it's a perfect city for you. Yeah. And he was right. How long did, you re did it take before you realized he was right? It didn't take very long because actually my dad's side of the family is from Toledo. So when I was a kid, we used to come out for a week over 4th of July every summer, and we'd stay in Toledo, and we'd go out fishing on Lake Erie. Um, and I had a lot of family that were from this area and um, a lot of good blue-collar folks. And so I, I knew that once I got here and people were cheering for an offensive lineman that got drafted, <laughs> at, at my press conference, I heard, heard the stories about people cheering in the bars when I got drafted. I said, you know, I, I think this is the type of place that I want to be. A, a town that appreciates blue-collar football, just hard-nosed, tough football, and they love their, their team. 
and it's Midwest, which I understand those people, I understand the culture here. Uh, I said, this is going to be a good fit. What was your first training camp experience? What I, I asked you earlier about the thoughts you had in your mind when you stepped on the field at Wisconsin for that first practice. You know now you're the Outland winner, you're an All-American, a you know, top three pick. Um, you couldn't have possibly had that same self-doubt coming in to your first practice in the NFL, did well, you? Well, it actually works uh, proportionally and oppositely, oppositely. As opposingly, we, as, you would think. as the expectations go up, you have more self-doubt, really? right? So because the expectations were really high, being the third pick, being the Outland Trophy winner, yeah. being the starter, I mean, almost from day one, they put me in as the starter at left tackle. I knew everybody was going to be gunning for me. So yeah. the stakes were even higher, and the microscope was going to be further on me and my position. And one little bad play, the people that weren't cheering in the bar when they drafted me were going to be the ones saying, see, this is why I didn't want him to draft this guy, wow. right? And so... That made me even more anxious and more nervous and really making me want to work harder to not prove to anybody because it wasn't a matter of proving. It was just a matter of eliminating any of the bad plays that somebody could use as a weapon against me to say how much I really sucked. <laughs> and that's what drove you. Your it, was, it, was, it was such a driving years. force. Yeah. Wow. Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns. Clutch performance when it matters most. That's why Bridgestone DriveGuard tires are built with the resilience to withstand bumps, bruises, even nails. Engineered to drive up to 50 miles after a flat, they're designed with the sole purpose of getting you where you need to go. Bridgestone, official tire of the NFL. Was there a moment where you, during a game in, in that rookie season, where you felt like literally felt, not worried that it might be the case, but actually felt, I don't, I, I don't know if I can do this. Well, as an offensive lineman, maybe year seven, eight, nine, I started to realize and understand a little bit more about like what my expectations are. Like, what do they expect from my position? Mm -hmm. Obviously, my guy is going to have some tackles, especially if the ball gets thrown down the field and he's running down the field. I can't stop that, sure. right? I didn't know that as a fresh uh, or as a rookie in the NFL. I didn't realize that like if the quarterback just starts running around and my guy gets a sack, it's not my fault cuz first of all I don't have eyes in the back of my head, but I can only block for a spot where he's supposed to be and then when he runs around I can do my best to try to help, but you know, sometimes there are coverage stacks. There are times where the quarterback escapes and my player sacks him. Um, and so the very first game of my career I'm playing against James Harrison. Pittsburgh Steelers and the game went terribly wrong. This one has started out pretty ugly. He pulls the ball down and he is going down again. <laughs> Charlie Fry was the starter going into that game mm -hmm. and by halftime was benched and he was one of our captains and the second half was played by Derek Anderson. I think we gave up six sacks in that game. I don't even know if James Harrison had any but I felt like he had all six of them because <laughs> literally every play I felt like I wasn't doing my job and it wasn't until the next day when we graded out where my offensive line coach, you know, I had plenty of minuses and plenty of plays I could improve on, but he kind of gave me the attaboy, like, hey, you did pretty good for a rookie. And I'm like, really? Like, I thought I got my ass kicked. <laughs> I can't believe that they thought I was okay in that game. Um, but the very first moment where I felt like I belonged actually happened the next week because we were playing the Bengals. So we got our ass kicked week one. I forget what yeah. the score was, 34-7 to seven or something. And 
our starting quarterback got benched and then traded the very next day. And so now Derek <laughs> Anderson's the new starter. Your first game in the first NFL. First game in the NFL, right? So second home game, second game in the NFL now. Cincinnati's coming to town. They got Carson Palmer, uh, TJ Hushmanzada, Ocho Cinco. Like, they got a pretty stacked roster. Um, and we played that game. Justin Smith was the defensive end that I was playing against. And at that point in his career, he hadn't really made a big name for himself, but real people that love offensive and defensive line play, they knew who he was because yeah. he was, was, was a badass. He was a tough guy, really good player. He ended up going to San Francisco, had a huge contract there, made all pro a few times. He was a great player. Um, but going into that game, I knew that he was going to be a really hard challenge, especially for me because he was a big, strong guy. And up until that point in my career, I always struggled with the big, strong guys. I was always athletically able to keep up with the skinny guys, but the big, strong guys, they gave me trouble. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time working on a game plan. I kind of came up with a different strategy to go against him. I was going to try to take the fight to him, right? They talk about in the military, like, take the fight to them sometimes. Yeah. Don't just wait back. Especially being that I knew if I sat back, he was going to steamroll me all game. So I watched his tendencies. I watched his hand placement, his foot placement. So I knew when he was going to spike to the inside. I knew when he was going to rush upfield. And I knew when he was going to rush upfield, I could jump set him. I could be aggressive. I could get my hands on him. And then I could play basketball and win with my athleticism. If he was coming to the inside, I had to set off a little bit more because I wouldn't be fast enough to react if I was going at him and he went inside. Right. And, but then I could ha have my left guard, Eric Steinbach, give me a little bit of help, help if out. he was coming to my inside. Um, so the game plan worked flawlessly. Like all the little tells that he had going into that game proved 100% true. Wow. Throws left corner of the end zone. Jurevicious. He's got it. Touchdown, Browns. And I walked out of that game and I graded really well. And I knew it because Justin had like no stats in that game. And so at that point, I realized like this is different than college because everybody I play against is going to be really good. But I know that. I can out game plan them and I can be a different version of myself every week. Almost like the Bill Belichick. Like, sure. They're a different offense and a different defense every single week yep. to try to take advantage of the other team's weaknesses. And I realized that I could do that as a left tackle against my defensive end every single week. And it might not work perfectly, but it was going to give me a really good chance to win. That's a hell of a way to start an NFL career. Yeah. Harrison and Smith. I mean, yeah. these are... These are Pro Bowl caliber assignments, yeah. Oh, yeah. and you did okay, which I'm sure you're being <laughs> humble, and no yeah. stats for yeah. Smith in the second yeah. game. At that point, Joe, finally, yeah. I'm not saying you put the self down right. away, no. but at that point, you weren't thinking about the jacket, but you no. were thinking, I can do this for a while that, and at a high level. That's exactly when I started thinking, like, I belong. I can do this, but then it became, now I need to prove that I can do this every single week. You know, When I was a rookie, Romeo Cornell would say, Everybody in the NFL has something to prove. Don't believe these people that say, once you've been in seven, eight years, you've made Pro Bowls, you have nothing to prove because you have to prove that you can still do it if you're at that level. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't done it, you have to prove that you can do it. So in my mind, it was like, I did it against Justin Smith, but now I need to prove that I, ha I can do it every single week. Yeah. And so that season, we had uh, Mario Williams come to town, who was the number one pick, made a bunch of Pro Bowls. We had... Jason Taylor, who was coming off the Defensive Player of the Year season. So we had a gauntlet of pass rushers that we had to play, and I held my own pretty well against all those guys. End of the season, made the Pro Bowl, but even that, that self-doubt, that imposter theory in my head, I go, how did I make the Pro Bowl? Like, I just snuck into that one, kind of backdoored. But my coach is like, 
oh, that's bullshit. You should have been a starter. He's like, you were just named like, uh, like the first alternate. And then we had, like, I think Jonathan Ogden was hurt. Um, there was a couple other guys that were hurt. So I, I was in. And he was like, you should have been a starter. You were probably the second best tackle in the NFL this year. I'm like, what? And, and I still was thinking, like, hey, he's just doing that to kind of build my confidence or whatever. Yeah. It was real. Yeah. <laughs> it was I real. I guess so. When you look back for 10 years and 10,300 whatever consecutive snaps, what's the most impressive thing about your career to you? It's that snap streak. Is it? That, that's what it is because, well, first of all, it hadn't been done before. So it gives my own mind perspective of the rarity of being able to accomplish that. Um, you know, 10 and a half years without breaking a shoelace or having a shoe fall off or losing a chin strap. At a high impact position. At a high impact position is pretty unlikely. So I feel pretty proud about that. But more than anything, I, I feel a lot of pride about that because to me, that is a, uh, a symbol of my commitment to my teammates and how important it was for me to be on that field through rain, through snow, through injury, whatever it was to be out there to help them. Because that's what the offensive line position really is about. It's about me trying to help those guys do their jobs. I'm trying to help the quarterback stand back there so he's got no problem on his left side so he can throw the football down to the field to those skinny guys so they can score touchdowns and get the girls and get the big endorsement deals. And then I can just go to the sideline and then come back out and do the same thing for the running back. Like, For me, my availability was being able to help my teammates the best way they can for their own success and for our team's success. And so that number 10,363, it really signifies, like for me personally, that commitment to those guys that I was willing to play through all those injuries that I had to be out there for them. Yeah, that's a work ethic thing too, that you're, it's baked into your DNA, I'm sure. Yeah. It's to be out there every day. Absolutely. Is that from where you're from and who you're from? Yeah, definitely from parents, from how you grew up, you know, kind of the values that they instill in you about going out there and giving your best and doing everything you can to um, be a hard worker. Like, don't take days off. Although I took a lot of practices off at the end of my career because I had to, <laughs> but that was a different story. But just having that commitment to your team and keeping that commitment. Like, my parents, when I was little, even when I started playing soccer and baseball, you know, like any kid, there was times where you didn't like it and you wanted to quit and they said, you have to be a man of your word. When you sign up for something, you say you're going to do it. You got to do it. Like, that's who you are. That's really important. Um, and so, for me, that was my mentality when I was playing football. Like, I signed up to do this. I made that commitment to my teammates that I was going to be here. And so, damn it, I'm going to do everything I can to be here for those guys because they're expecting that out of me. Yeah. And there were a lot of situations during those 10,363 snaps where. It would have made perfect sense to pull <laughs> Joe Thomas off the field right yeah. now. Not because you were blowing the team out, but no. probably the other way right. around. Have you ever thought about the number of quarterbacks that you blocked for? Do you know what that number is? I get asked a lot, and I try not to remember exactly because <laughs> I, I don't want that to be the first number that pops off my head. Right, but exactly. I know I've blocked for over 20 starting quarterbacks, somewhere in there, and... 23 to 25 maybe quarterbacks that have gotten in the game. The number is a little bit unofficial because 
Terrell Pryor took snaps at quarterback because True. of injury. Right. I mean, we had Josh Cribbs playing quarterback in some games because of injury and because of lack of success with the other quarterbacks. And so there, there's been a lot of guys that have come in. I mean, Clipboard Jesus came in and took a few snaps <laughs> at quarterback. Uh, Charlie, I think Charlie Whitehurst. Yeah. Or Whitehead. I Whitehead. Um, so Whitehead? there's been – is it Charlie Whitehurst? or Whitehurst. Whitehurst. Yeah, Whitehurst. Clipboard Jesus. Yeah. So – Throughout my 11 years, there was a lot of quarterbacks that came in there and had snaps. There's a lot of guys that had starts, but it is a hard time, hard time keeping all of them straight. No one told you there'd be math involved, but let's do yeah. a little. Okay. okay. So seventh and eighth grade, you didn't lose. Ninth, Never. 10th, 11th, 12th. How many games did you lose combined in your high school career? Do you remember? Were your teams uh, good? We were really good. We made state my freshman year, okay. state finals, my freshman yep. year, my senior year. Um, I think my freshman year we lost two or three games. My senior year, probably about the same. Okay. And then my sophomore, junior year, we were good, but we weren't great. So we probably lost 10 total. So that's 16. 16 between middle school and high school, let's say. Then in Wisconsin, very few losses. Very few. We were pretty good. We were. Uh, lost one your senior year. Won my senior year. We lost three my junior year, and my sophomore year, I want to say we were, we were like eight and five. So let's say roughly, and then my, my freshman year, we were pretty solid. So let's say maybe 10 in college. So 10 and so probably 26 games going into my NFL career in my football, my 10 years of football. Going all the way back to junior high school. Junior high school, yeah. And you come to Cleveland, and, and you're not in 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 Kansas anymore, Not Toto. in Kansas anymore. What was that like for you? Because I know that you've always looked at team and not yeah. me. Mm -hmm. um, what was that like? What was that transition like from always being on a team that was in the mix, always, for yeah. the championship, whatever league you were playing in, yeah. to playing for 11 years on a team that never really was considered a team that could even contend? That was the hardest thing of my football career was finding that motivation when you were on a losing team and you were, when you were out of the playoffs. It, it's easy to be about the team and it's easy to put in that hard work and be committed to your teammates when you have something to play for from a postseason standpoint, when things are going well. But to have the lack of success that we had from years two through years 11, and, and still find a way to put team first and to be driven and motivated for your personal greatness and to be committed to those teammates, to give everything you have to go out there through pain and injury. Like that was a learned trait that I had to learn in the NFL and it was really hard, especially those first few years. Because my, my first year, we were pretty good. We were 10 and six. Yeah. Like six losses felt like a lot, but in the NFL it's not. Um, especially when you compare it to the number of losses I had the rest of my career. But then years two and three, when we were, you know, five and 11, four and 12, like finding that internal motivation when my third year, we started out one and 11 under Eric Mangini's first year. And to start out one and 11 and going into week 13, already out of the playoffs, nothing to play for. It's cold, you're injured, it's snowy, the field's frozen. Like finding that resolve to go out there and give the best effort, give the same effort in that game as you did in week one when you're getting ready for a season of hope and optimism. Mm -hmm. 
is really hard, and a lot of guys don't find a way to do that. One of the reasons I love interviewing you is because you answer questions. You're not afraid <laughs> to answer questions. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask some questions that most guys probably wouldn't answer, but yeah. I'm going to give it a shot with All right. you. Did you have a favorite teammate? Uh, I would say probably Alex Mack. We were together the longest, I think, of probably all of my teammates. Um, and he's one of my best friends to this day. But he was also, he was a lot different than me, but that made me a better player. Um, he was different from like a nerd standpoint. Like I always felt like I was kind of a nerd, but then here's this guy that's showing up out of college reading like fantasy novels in the ice tub. And I would always laugh. I would make him show me the last page of his books because he was going through like two books a week in training camp. It was amazing. I don't know how he, ta how, how he found time to read, yeah. but I would always ask him, I'd be like, hey, Alex, let me see the last page of that book. And he would always turn to the last, last page and it would be a fake map of like the fantasy world that this book is existing. And I was like, you're a loser, you know? But, but I think that's kind of like what brought us together. Yeah. Um, and he had that, that same drive for greatness, that same work ethic. Um, he was a really smart kid. He won the Dratty Award at Cal. And so I learned a lot from him from like a football X's and O's standpoint. Being the center, him and the quarterback have to be on the same page with protections and coverages and fronts and shifts and motions. Um, and that was a part of my game that I didn't have to learn really as a left tackle because right. typically the center gives me the call and I'm just focused on blocking my guy and then I just do whatever he tells me. But like being that him and I developed such a close relationship, I really learned a lot more about the defense as a whole and our offense as a whole. Like normally shifts and motions to a lineman, you don't really think about it that much. But a center has to think about it because he needs to know if the tight end's going to go across the motion and they're going to shift the front. We may have to change our blocking scheme or our protection because he knows they're going to move. Yeah. And so, like, opening up that side of the football game made me a much better player, but it's also made me now a better NFL analyst because I understand the whole game instead of just my little piece of being a left tackle. Favorite head coach? Um, I loved Hugh Jackson, which is so funny because everybody in Cleveland hates him because the record was so bad <laughs> during those two years. I thought he was a, a great head coach from a leadership standpoint. I thought he ran a great offense. He hired a good staff. Um, I loved Rob Chudzinski. He was only here one year, but I thought he could have had success had he been given more time. Yeah. Um, I mean, shoot, what did I have? Seven? Seven of them? Of them. So yeah. <laughs> there's a lot to pick from. Uh, and even the guys that I didn't like, like I didn't like Eric Mangini. I didn't like Romeo at the beginning of my career. Now that I've reflected back on it, I think a lot of it was because of the stress of being a young player in the NFL. Yeah. Um, and I think just not understanding the game as well, not understanding the business side of it, not understanding the coaching side of it, their perspective on trying to build and mold a team. Yeah. Um, but I definitely appreciate the things I've learned from them now. And, and now that I, I think back on it, I'm like, you know, they, they were better coaches than I expected. Yeah. And, you know, in a different situation, I, maybe I say this about a lot of people that have come through Cleveland, maybe in a different situation, they could have had a lot of success. Yeah. Funniest teammate. Um, Robert Royal. He was a tight end that really? we had in the middle of my career, and he was always goofing around. He was always making people laugh. Uh, he, he was a lot of fun. Even in those Mangini years when everything was very stoic and very serious, he would be dancing during warm-ups, and he would even get Mangini to laugh. Yeah, which is hard to do. Which was hard to I do I didn't back know he then. laughed, in fact. He did not laugh. And I like Eric. But, but the I funny didn't... thing is now that Eric's on TV, 
Like him and I are good friends, yeah. and he's he's awesome. He's great. He's got a great personality outside of the building. But when he was here and he was in that I'm a head coach mode, there was no laughter. No, I worked with him for a lot of years. We're close friends now. I hated him as a coach. Oh, he's sorry, the worst. Eric. Yeah, but. I, I, he knows that. I've told yeah. him that. I love him now. And yeah, I tell him, person. why didn't you bring some of these skills to the head coaching position? Yep. And I think maybe he might even realize Yeah, in hindsight, now, he said that. You know, and I've talked to him a little bit about it. Which is a shame it. because I, know, it's I too think bad. he's a he's so smart. brilliant football oh, mind. Yeah, brilliant. absolutely. And so, I remember when, real quick, before, yeah. right when we hired him, Mike Vrabel and I were good friends. Mm -hmm. He was playing for the Patriots at the time. And he was... Eric Mangini was Mike's position coach, I think, in New England, and then he became his defensive yes. coordinator. And so I was like, you know, what do we got for this guy? I heard bad stuff coming out of New York, and Vrabel's like, oh, you're going to love him. He's funny. He's self-deprecating. He'll keep it light. He'll make you work. But, you know, he's fair. He's even-handed. He's got a great sense of humor. He's got a great personality. And so I'm like, well, I'm good with that. Like, I want to work hard. I want to learn from a really smart coach as long as it's like a little bit of a lighthearted environment. And as a head coach, there was no lighthearted environment here with Eric. <laughs> no, there was not. Um, do you have a, a, a moment in, of your career that you think defines you as a player? And I know it's tough because for, for, for left tackles, <laughs> yeah. those moments, you know, yeah. are, are, you know, hard to come by or spot. But yeah. do you have a play, a moment, a game that when you think back to your career, you want people to remember you this way? Um, I would like people to remember me by the Pittsburgh Steelers game that Alex Mack broke his leg, mm -hmm. which might sound a little funny to start, but mm -hmm. that was the only Steelers game in my career where we blew him out. I mean, yeah. we beat him really good. Uh, we ran for all sorts of yards. Brian Hoyer was the quarterback. Unfortunately, Alex did break his leg, but right at the end of that game, the coaches sent Vincent Painter from the sideline to replace me. And this was the first year of the Mike Pettin coaching staff. And so they had no idea that I had, at that point, had like seven years without missing a play. Um, but they just thought like, okay, we're winning by a lot. We need to take our more important players off so they don't get hurt. So Vincent Painter comes into the huddle and he's like, he taps me on the shoulder. <laughs> of course, I'm surprised because I've never come out of a game. And I look over my shoulder and I'm like, what are you doing here? He's like, I got you. And I'm like, you don't got me. I'm not coming out now. Like, <laughs> finally get to enjoy a Steelers game for the first time in my life, and you're going to take me out? Hell no. Get out of here. And so he's like, so he, like, starts running to the sideline, and the coach is like, no, no, go in for the next guy. And I think um, whoever my left guard was at the time, I don't remember exactly, but uh, because Greco had moved to center, and he was the left guard. Or maybe it was Joel. Ah, can't remember who it was. Yeah. Bad part of the story. <laughs> but anyways, okay. so Vincent goes to the left guard. I got you. No, no. Goes to the center. No, no. So he goes all the way down the line to the right tackle. Everyone refuses to come out. So then he ends up running back to the sideline right before we get the playoff. So if you can choose one play or one game to sort of encapsulate your time here, if I got to choose, it would be that game because for me, it, it signifies the most important thing to me during my career, which was my commitment to my team and my teammates. And even in a game where we were – blowing the team out where I could go and sit and drink Gatorade on the sideline the rest of the game. I was more interested in being out there for those guys yeah. um, to be part of that team that was able to enjoy the success from that, that day. Have you ever met Cal Ripken? I did, actually. He was in Cleveland like a couple years ago doing an autograph signing at one of these big shows that I was at, and we were both 
um, in the back room and we got to chat things up a little bit, which was really cool. Did it enter your mind at that point that you're kind of football's version of Cal Ripken? Yeah, you know, some people had said things like that to me up until that moment. And when I got a chance to meet Cal Ripken, um, my agent kind of introduced us and said, hey, he's the NFL's Iron Man version of you. And Cal's like, oh, I know who you are. And I'm like, I think you're just saying that to be nice. But if not, that's pretty cool. Cal knew who you were. He knew who I was. Well, he's a huge sports fan. Yeah. He knew who you were. Yeah. So that, that, was, that was a pretty cool moment when I got a chance to meet him. Because obviously, when I was a kid, I was not a huge baseball fan. But everybody knew who Cal Ripken was and the streak and how legendary he was as a player and how durable he was to to be the football's version of that is really humbling it's not often that you can make a comparison cross sport it's it's tough yeah. you know i mean yeah there is you know baseball's version of tom brady sure. if that's Derek jeter or whoever that might be yeah. but the one that i think makes perfect sense here is joe thomas and cal ripkin it just seems like you guys are the same guy mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways, <laughs> it, it, personally too, personalities and everything else. Um, is, there, is there anybody else that you can think of that you would more likely be compared to? Am I missing something? Uh, I don't know, Derek Jeter would be a good one. I'm not sure that's a good comparison, but I know he's had a lot of success and he's a very handsome man. So that would be somebody <laughs> I'd love to be compared to. <laughs> I'm sure Derek would love to be yeah, compared right. to Joe Thomas too. <laughs> Bridgestone knows you want the same thing from your tires as you do from the Cleveland Browns. Performance when it matters most. Which is why Bridgestone tires are built for just that. Whether it's driving up to 50 miles to safety after a flat, confident control in wet conditions, or the dependability of an 80,000-mile limited warranty, Bridgestone's roster of tires has got you covered. Bridgestone, official tire of the NFL. Conditions apply. See BridgestoneTire.com slash warranty for details. The fans, obviously, and their love affair with you, it will never end. You know that. Um, and their appreciation for what you were able to bring to a city that was always getting knocked back on its heels. And you never quit. And I think that, more than anything, exemplifies the perfect marriage between you and the city of Cleveland. You hear so many times from these fans, wherever you go, how much they love you. I'd like to give you an opportunity to tell Cleveland fans what they mean to you collectively. What, mm -hmm. what do they mean mm -hmm. to you? Well, Cleveland fans mean to me everything that my career was, was about the fans. And it was about the love and appreciation for a team and for a player that maybe didn't always live up to expectations, but were willing to put in the work and the time no matter what the, the odds were. And I think... For me, f walking around town and feeling the love from the fans in spite of the teams that we were on and in spite of the agony and the misery that we provided these poor Cleveland Browns fans for so long, um, it means the world to still get recognized. It means the world to me to feel that love and that appreciation for somebody who plays a position who doesn't have stats except for bad ones, who has no touchdowns or catches in his entire career, um, to kind of get that recognition for the work and the commitment that me personally, but also my other offensive line teammates put in for this team and for this city, um, it feels like a mutual level of respect. And I think that's the best thing that as a NFL player you can say about 
your city and vice versa is like to have mutual respect for what you go through the fans being diehard through the agony the players giving everything they got for the team for the city in spite of maybe not great results i think that marriage is really beautiful you do have stats 10-3-6-3, that's perhaps the greatest <laughs> yes. stat of all. Ten seasons, full seasons, ten Pro Bowls, and it's going to end in Canton soon. Um, have you thought about that day? And when you have thought about that day, what comes to mind? I've always been a person that doesn't think too much about stuff way into the future that I don't have control over, like Hall of Fame voting. Um, but I feel pretty comfortable that it's going to come soon. Um, and it's one of the few things that I have allowed myself to think about briefly. A lot of times when it's Hall of Fame year, either at the Super Bowl, when um, they're announcing the Hall of Fame class, or then in the summer during training camp when they start playing the Hall of Fame game, I start thinking about the emotions, what it's going to be like mm -hmm. to be up on that stage and to Are be you an announced. emotional guy? I am. So that makes me nervous because <laughs> I know you have to give a speech and I want to make sure I can get through that speech because I have uh, a high level of emotion sometimes. Not when I'm playing. I'm cool as a cucumber, but like with my family now reflecting on my career, mm -hmm. like I'm an emotional person. And so as I reflect back or reflect forward on what it potentially will be like, being up there, um, it gives me the goosebumps, but it also makes me nervous that I'm not going to be able to hold it together <laughs> because I'm going to think about all the great fans that kept showing up in spite of the losing and all the individual friends that I made, not only on the football team, but uh, in the coaching staff, in the community, the 11, 12 years that my wife and I lived here and the three kids that were born in Cleveland and how much we feel a part of this area and um, when people come up and say, like, we're so excited for you to go in the Hall of Fame for the city and for the team, I'm like, wow, that, that feels like a heavy weight. But I know the hay's in the barn, so I don't have to worry about it, so I can kind of, yeah. like, celebrate it a little bit. Yeah. Um, no self-doubt there, please. <laughs> it's going to happen, Joe. Uh, have you thought about who you would like to present you? I've thought a little bit about it, but I'm not exactly sure. I, I haven't gotten far enough down the path of thinking about it to, like, talk to other people to get some advice on yeah. who would be the right people to do that. Um, but I know that's a decision I'm probably going to have to make. <laughs> yeah, it's coming. Yeah. <laughs> a couple of years. Yeah. What was it like when you, in your mind, came to that decision that you're done, you're retiring? Um, I, I think in the end it was kind of an easy decision. Going into my 11th season, which was my last season, I had serious consideration of retiring then talked pretty significantly with my wife because my knee was in really bad shape I had just had surgery and and we decided at that point like we're gonna just go till the wheels fall off and give it another year um, see if the knee comes back from the surgery if you're able to play we'll do everything we can from a medical standpoint to take the hits off the knee except for on game day that's why I basically didn't practice anymore just a couple practices in training camp to get ready and then go play the game. Um, but once I hurt my elbow uh, in year 11, I'd already felt that the knee was going downhill, and I'd already started to have a lot of anxiety in my last season that my knee was going to 
get so bad that I was going to actually just miss games because of my knee. And having that streak continuing and my desire to be out there for my team and my teammates, like I just had that anxiety building up that the knee was just going to get so bad and I could feel it getting to that place that I was going to have to, you know, in my mind, quit on my teammates in the middle of the season. And that was like heartbreaking to me. And so tearing my tricep tendon in my left elbow, when that happened, it was almost like a relief where it was like something happened where I'm, there's no question that I can't continue. Right. Whereas when you have uh, degenerative knee disease, bone on bone arthritis in your knee, it's just like the pain just keeps getting up and the swelling keeps getting up and it's hard to know like when it's too much and you can't perform anymore. And I started feeling that my performance was going to get hindered by that knee and that, that anxiety went backing up when I, when I tore that uh, tendon it gave me almost a little bit of relief because it was like a clean ending. And I kind of knew in the back of my head, like that's probably the last play of my football career. And I'm okay with it because I, I feel like a sense of peace almost where, where it ended. So post football, you seemed well positioned to have similar success. Mm -hmm. Your broadcasting career is taking off and it's clear that you've got mountains to climb in that profession. What, what is the ultimate professional height for Joe mm. Thomas post-football? That's a good question. Uh, I know when I got into the NFL, I wanted to be a pro bowler. I wanted to be a Hall of Famer. I wanted to win a Super Bowl. Like Those were the goals that were very clear. I knew what it took to get to that, and I knew that's what I wanted. Um, Post-career, my priorities have kind of changed, and that was uh, a big excitement for me when I got to retire, was when I was playing football, my priority was being the best left tackle I possibly could. And unfortunately for my family and my friends, like they were on the back burner. They were a little bit lower on the totem pole. But I wanted to change that hierarchy in retirement. I wanted to make sure that I put my family and my friends first, and then I knew I wanted a career because I knew I needed purpose and I needed to feel productive because that's just the way my brain was wired. But I wanted to put family first, career second. And I feel like I've done that, um, but I also feel like I've enjoyed the broadcasting more than I expected. And so right now at this point, I'm just kind of going along and just enjoying things day to day without looking at the big picture long term what I want to do. Um, I love doing the Thursday night football. I love working for the Browns. Um, I love being out on Total Access doing the NFL Network shows. It gives you such a great ability to still be around the game, to still be in knee deep in the X's and O's, to talk to players, but you don't have that time commitment or that body commitment that it takes when you are a player. Um, so I think right now I'm just kind of enjoying things and just taking things one day and one year at a time. Uh, I know that aspirationally I, I did call a game last year. I called the Tampa Bay Buccaneers Houston Texans game with Rich Eisen and Nate Burleson yep. and I really enjoyed it. It was fun being on the color commentary because it's a three-hour time with everybody that tunes in and you get to just spill out a piece of your brain and try to give them a little bit of insight into the game and give them a few laughs and I really enjoyed doing that. So I could see myself maybe doing a little bit more color potentially down the road um, but I'm, I'm not worried as much about that, and I'm just kind of yeah. taking things one day at a time. I think you're well positioned. 
Well, thanks. And we're going to be seeing a lot more of Joe Thomas <laughs> on football, I can tell you that. Joe, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. I know that our viewers have enjoyed it as well. And thank you for watching another edition of Club 46, driven by Bridgestone. We're back next time with another all-time great Cleveland Brown. Joe, thank you very much. Thanks for having me.